If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Since you're listening to this podcast, we have a very special offer for you. You can try six issues of BBC History Revealed magazine for just $9.99. That's a saving of 70% on the shop price. BBC History Revealed is the all-action history magazine suitable for the whole family. To find out more and take advantage of this offer, visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash podcast. And if you're based in the US, you won't miss out. You can try three issues for just $9.95, saving a huge 70%. For more details, visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash podcast. Both these offers end on the 15th of May, 2021. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The Peasants' Revolt of 1381 was a pivotal moment in the troubled reign of Richard II. New research from the People of 1381 project is revealing that rather than being an ill-disciplined explosion of rage, it was actually organised with military precision. The cover feature of the May issue of BBC History magazine explored this further, and our content director, David Musgrove, caught up with two of the project's researchers, Professor Adrian Bell and Dr Helen Lacey, to find out more. Today I'm joined by Professor Adrian Bell and Dr Helen Lacey, who are part of the research team of the People of 1381 project. 1381 was, of course, the year of the Peasants' Revolt, and that's the cover feature of the May issue of BBC History magazine, uh, which was, in fact, written by the project team. So we're going to delve into the subject a bit more now. Adrian, Helen, welcome. Thank you for joining us. How are you both? Yeah, doing well, thank you. Good stuff. So first question, we need to get into this topic uh, to understand it. So um, Helen, would you be able to summarise very briefly what happened in the Peasants' Revolt? Yeah, sure. So um, this is the spring of 1381. Um, The young Richard II, the king, is on the throne um, and the English are fighting a war with the French, which had been going well, but has in recent years been going less and less well. Um, And what happens is the government try to implement a poll tax. This was the third poll tax that they tried to impose in four years. And um, commissions are sent out to enforce payment. And this provokes sporadic uh, outbreaks of resistance and discontent. Um, So we see um, violence against the commissioners who are sent to collect the poll taxes. This is in Kent and Essex in particular, but spreads out into the rest of the home counties um, in East Anglia. And then um, by early June, the rebels, particularly the rebels in Kent and Essex, are coordinating their their insurgency and planning to move on London. Um, And then what happens is on, on the 12th of June, the, the rebels from Kent and Essex meet together and camp on Blackheath in uh, southeast London. And there they're joined by an insurgent preacher, a man called John Bull, who is um, a, a radical priest. priest. 
Um, and then over the 13th to the 15th of June, there were a series of meetings where the rebels try to um, discuss their demands with the king and the king comes out to, to talk to them, but they're uh, variously aborted at different times. And um, famously, the rebels move to the Tower of London and they seek out and behead some of the key government officials. Okay, so you've mentioned John Ball there and and Richard II. Who else are the the, the main players in this story? Yeah, so on the rebel side, we've got um, a man called Watt Tyler. We don't actually know much about him um, other than that he's a craftsman and he's a leader of the Kentish rebels, um, but he becomes sort of synonymous with the revolt. Uh, we've got John Ball, as we said, who is a radical preacher. He preaches this message of sort of radical Christian egalitarianism. So he famously says, when Adam delved and Eve span, who was then the gentleman? Uh, and then, as I've said, on the crown side, you've got the 14-year-old Richard II, who succeeded to the throne after his grandfather, Edward III, um, who was a famous um, you know, king who'd won victories against the French. Uh, so he's got a lot to live up to. Um, and his un- Richard II's uncle, John of Gaunt, um, who many suspect to be the real power behind the throne. And there's a, there's a real sort of feeling of unpopularity around John of Gaunt. OK. Now, what's the uh, traditional interpretation of, of who was involved and why this happened? Well, I think one of the main interpretations has been that in the decades after the Black Death, so the Black Death arrives in England in 1348, and in a two-year period um, decimates the population by almost a half. Um, And the the interpretation is that in the wake of this Black Death and and population change, there's real um, social upheaval. And so people who were previously um, pinned at the bottom of the social ladder, if you like, as serfs working for lords in this feudal pyramid, that they are increasingly discontent with their lot. They can see the kind of ability to purchase land and perhaps um, gain surplus wage and so on after the Black Death. But they are being frustrated by government who are passing laws to keep them in their place uh, at the bottom rung of the social ladder. Uh, added to that, we've got political instability. Edward III's death, um, he becomes senile and dies. So his great glory years of victory against the French are, are well and truly over. His son, who was meant to inherit the Black Prince, who is a popular military martial figure, dies before his father. So then we have got this instability because the young Richard II now is, is taking the throne, which is something people hadn't expected. And that's always a cause of instability when you have a young king acceding to the throne. Um, added to that, we've got a downturn, as I've said, in the French wars, where the French have actually managed to uh, marshal their troops and take the war back to the English. And they are now also launching raids even on the south coast of England. So there's real feeling of, of um, worry and concern that the French will actually invade England. And then, as I mentioned, finally, the um, poll tax seems to be the final straw in all of this, where the government are trying to um, impose this head tax on the population. So rather than a community-based income tax, they're now trying to levy a flat tax per head of the population, which is very, very unpopular. So uh, so your research, the research of the team, is kind of uh, nuancing um, that interpretation a bit, and we'll, we'll come to that uh, through the discussion. And also we'll talk a little bit more about uh, about the French wars um, for anyone who's who's worried they're not on top of that. So don't worry, we'll, we'll come back to it in, in a little while. Um, so are we correct to call it a peasant's revolt that's the you know the traditional term that's what um people associate with 1381 the famous term the peasants revolt the peasants are revolting was it just peasants was it revolt <laughs> well it was it's actually christened the peasants revolt only in the victorian period so um john richard green christened it the peasants revolt in 1874 um but before then uh, so contemporaries in the, at the period referred to it as um, variously as the great rumour or the, um, that they were rising in a warlike fashion, or they even called it the great hurling time. Um, so they had no particular label for it, but it was associated with this idea of rumour and murmur and noise, which is quite interesting for us when we think about what, what sort of fears were conjured by, um, by the revolt in the minds of contemporaries. Now, um, your your research and what you've written about in the magazine feature has showed us that um, uh, actually people involved in this uh, in this revolt were uh, there was a lot of former soldiers from England's wars in France. So um, we'll talk about that uh, a bit more. But but um, can you can one of you give us a sense about how you've been able to discover that fact? Yeah, so perhaps I could talk about that more here now. Um, the original idea of the project for me was. It's such a well-organised revolt that they 
they're organized so well. They say they're going to do something, the rebels, and then they do it. They, they, they get into the Tower of London. They execute leading figures in government. And so ever since I was thinking about this, probably as an undergraduate, I, I thought that this is a bit that's not been explored. Why are they and how are they so successful? People who've, who've, who've investigated the, the uh, Peasants' Revolt are more worried about, you know, and thought more about it being some sort of proto-Marxism type event. You know, they're more worried about the big picture. What does it tell us about um, society? Whereas I'm always very interested in things contrary to these these ideas. So I wondered, well, how did they do it? And so myself and uh, my colleague, who's also working on the project, Professor Anne Curry, in a previous project, have brought together the names of soldiers who fought for the English in the Hundred Years' War. So this is the the war that went on, you know, another one of the things like Helen mentioned, a Victorian invention. It's it's a hundred years war. It's longer than a hundred years. It's uh, wars between England and France and a, a number of kings on both sides around England's or the English king's claim to be king of France. So that's that's at, that's at base what's 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 going on. Uh, and famously, Henry V later than than our period. So in fourteen. Uh, 15, Agincourt wins a famous battle and later is actually uh, allowed to be King of France once the current King of France dies. So in a sense, it's, 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 it could be a very successful uh, set of wars for the English if you, if you look at it that way. But this period, as Helen said, it's not going so well. But we've, we've gathered the names of about 250,000 soldiers. And it's not, that's not 250 individuals, but 250,000 service records of, of, of men, mo- mostly men, mainly men, who served the English crown during this period between about 1360 and 1453. And we can look at a subsection of those names and compare them against the names of the uh, rebels, but also the rebels' victims uh, and also other people who are mentioned at this time. And we're working with a, a group of um, computer scientists at the University of Southampton, uh, Geodata, and we're able to then compare quickly lists of soldiers from our previous database with the, with the peasants. I'm sorry, I always say the peasants with the rebels and find out, are these the same people? So this is, this is a, a big data project, essentially, then? Yeah, so it, makes, it always makes that I work in a business school. So it makes my colleagues laugh because they work with millions or let's say millions of data points for big data. And I say, oh, this is medieval big data when it only it's hundreds of thousands. And actually, in terms of rebels, we're talking, you know, up to about 10,000 names that we'll find named rebels of this time. But comparing one big data source with another is very exciting for us as medievalists to be able to do this. And we've got another big data source, which is the poll tax returns themselves, which are, again, hundreds of thousands And they give us the names of the individuals with a location and also, in many cases, a payment. So we can say something about the socioeconomic status of these people. So they could be a soldier, they could be a rebel, and we might be able to say they came from this manor in this county, they did this this role, this occupation, and paid this much tax. So you've actually got um, uh, quite a wealth of data then uh, for, for this project in comparison to maybe some other uh, medieval research um, uh, projects. Yes, I think so. So all these, a lot of medieval projects now are building up this sort of data. So there's another one now, which which we're also trying to intersect with called England's immigrants, which goes through a long period of, of immigrants into, the, into England. So this is now happening. And the more people like us put their stuff online and make it openly available, so all our projects are always openly available for the public and for other researchers, the more we can start to compare and link and and, it, and when I did my PhD, you know, it wasn't that, I mean, it probably was a long time ago. You know, I was painstakingly going through card indexes of names before it was computerized. Um, and it was impossible. You know, you just couldn't do this work because it was, it was impossible to compare one thing with another. Whereas now, even the work we're doing now, myself and, and, and Anne, just the other day, uh, the computer sciences invented a new piece of, uh, let's say, kit for us to, to basically compare two things. And we were just shocked with the speed of the results we're getting back and the number of hits we're getting, because we don't just look for exact matches, because at the time, um, the clerks wrote down your name. They thought, said, what's your surname? And I might have said Bell, because that's my surname. They might have written Ball or Bell with an E mm. or 
etc or bell with two e's you know so etc so so how does that how do we know it's the same name well we can do sound alike comparisons using this computer science so it's not just b-e-l-l that's compared it'll bring in all these other elements of bell to be able to to do much wider search than's ever been possible and and as you said all this all this information is on your website 1381.online that's the that's uh, right that's, that's, yes that's, that's um and we'll be launching the public the public interface will be launched later this year so we're just building up there a pilot at the moment it's working really well and we're hoping to have that ready for the before the end of the year hopefully i say sooner but it still be before the end of the year <laughs> so um okay so uh we've got to you've, you've got all this information about the about the people involved in the, in the period and you are you are getting a sense that the Peasants' Revolt, and I'm going to keep calling it that, um, uh, was was much more coordinated than you might imagine. Um, and that, that begs the question, who was doing the coordination? So we find um, key soldiers, um, uh, and we've been able to categorise these into different sorts of areas. So we've got this group of soldiers that are very mobile, so they land in, um, one example is John Pepper, and we write about him on our on our website. You can find a, a story about him. And he's in France campaigning with the Earl of Buckingham, another of Richard's uncles. Comes back in around the beginning of May, um, lands in England, and then a few days later, he's raising insurrection in Cambridge. So hugely mobile, they'll be mounted on horseback, riding around the countryside, um, creating you know a, a rebellion a revolt as they go in groups of, of men and these men are what we called esquires they're men at arms so they they're armed on horseback um very much looking like the knights that you'd, you'd see in the films today you know heavily armed um uh, quite menacing i expect and and then they'll be using this, this their equipment to ride around raising insurrection and they're riding across the country, uh, as I said, uh, John Pepper moving there. So this one set, you can see le- what are they working as messengers or instigators. Um, then we've got other groups um, who have got expertise in military sort of um, uh, technology. And they're using their skills to supplement the damage the rebels can do. And when you read about the damage they do, they're hugely um, successful in terms of they'll raise manor houses. And you've only got to look at any village and look at the manor, see how big they are. And they raise these to the ground, sometimes using a thing we call a trebuchet, so a very complicated catapult. Um, there's others that are trained as masons and they use that, that, that sort of ability to bring these houses down. So highly skilled uh, military technology uh, bringing back and using. Um, and also, they're also very skilled in in, com- in when you when you're on campaign with the English armies, they're all mounted, um, but they all manage to work in, in conjunction with each other. So your man at arms, your archers, they're working in conjunction. They know when to when to meet, when to do things, and it's these sorts of elements that I've always thought are part of the way this this revolt this this revolt carries on. So, so John Pepper, this character you just talked about. Um, if he's turning up back in England from the French wars um, with a horse and a full set of arms and armament, he he ain't no peasant, is he? No, he's not. A, he's not. A, <laughs> he's not a peasant. No, he's a, uh, these people who are men at arms or squires, uh, you know, will be fairly wealthy. They might be uh, landowners or they might have an occupation. And also, just fighting as a, as an English soldier is well paid. So. An archer in the English armies gets six pence a day. Uh, that's more than you get for being a labourer um, in agricultural work. And a squire, man at arms, gets 12 pence a day. Um, and as you went up the ranks, then your daily salary went up to an earl who would get a mark, a, a one mark a day. Um, so you, you, it was all daily, all paid, all contracted. So that's how we have their names of these soldiers. It's a hugely... Uh, contract, what should we say, bureaucratic administrative system set up by the English Crown to take account of how much money they're spending, making sure it's going on paying soldiers their daily rates and it's all recorded uh, by muster rolls with ticks and balances um, to make sure this all happens. And I guess that's where part of your data sets from then, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So, so were there were there a lot of soldiers returning specifically in the early 1380s from France? 
So there's just just this one camp. This one campaign comes back. It's not been that successful. Yeah. Uh, uh, and they've, they've, there's a number of people also we found in the records who are deserters. So haven't actually joined. Have said they're going to join this campaign and have not. And have perhaps have been just looking around for things to do. But these soldiers, you could either say they're at a loose end. You know, they they used to campaigning regularly. And this the, 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 the amount of um, opportunities for their fighting abroad are less than they were. So the so one argument we have is why there's so many soldiers is perhaps they're a bit they're a bit frustrated by the lack of activity that they're able to get. Sure. So they, they, they've come back onto onto English soil uh, and they've kept all their weapons and armaments. Is that that's not sort of royal property? It's their property? Yeah, that's right. You're meant to come fully armed and arrayed. So when you're muster, when you take the muster, they're checking that these people, if they're an archer, they've got a longbow. Um, you provide them with arrows because the sort you're going to get through a lot of, of arrows on campaign. So there'd be carts full of arrows brought by uh, that would be produced in England and, and taken across to France. But the actual basic equipment you'd be provided. If you're in a, uh, you'd be expected to provide, sorry, but if you're in a retinue, so we, we organise these things. Again, I'm getting a bit technical, but it's called indentured retinue. Indentured, the contract, the retinue is the group. And these retinue would be a mixed group led by a captain. And that would be a mixed group of knights, esquires and archers who would all be mounted. Uh, and in that group, the captain has some responsibilities for his group he's bringing with him. But he'll be expecting them to bring the equipment with them. But he has, you know, the sense they are a group and they operate together uh, on on these campaigns abroad, which operate, as we call it, another technical term, but as a chevrochet. So the chevrochet is a mounted raid, um, quite destructive. Um, you know, none of this is very nice to talk. You know, we talk about it, but it's not nice. You know, in a sense, they go across France, destroying everything they could. The crops they would burn. They would they would try and um, take towns if they were easy to take. They wouldn't want to waste a lot of time on on sieges. So if the town shut up against them, they'd leave it alone. But if they could quickly take town and village, they would. They'd burn them to the ground. They'd take all of the all of the um, uh, uh, movable consumption consumptible items with them. Um, so they weren't a very nice thing to do. And France was open to that, and the and the English were were willing and regularly did this. So we've got a situation here that you're describing where we've got um, uh, a a bunch of uh, armed, trained military men returning to English soil, um, uh, disaffected um, potentially with the progress of the the campaign they've been involved in and possibly slightly bored that they've got no more fighting to do. Is is the Crown making any sort of accommodation for them on their return to to find further employment for them or, or, or pay them in any way? No, these are, I guess you'd call them like semi-professionals. So it's not a professional army but in any way. These people have other occupations and are part of, of society in their not, in their ordinary lives. And then every now and again, we find them going on campaign. Now, they may go on one campaign or they may go on multiple campaigns. So they're not like they have to be doing this. Um, normally, they may be a, a merchant. They may be a, a labourer. They, they could be anything, um, but also they may live in the town, they may live in the country. So it's all different groups of people coming together to fight these little campaigns. But when they come back, no, you've got your you've got your wages, you are paid. We, there's lots of stories about them bringing back lots of, um, uh, let's say, stolen goods, which would they would then enhance their their uh, their wages and also ransoms. So they may take ransom prisoners. And they bring some of them back with them as well in hoping to make money from them. But there's no, there's nothing from the Crown following uh, their, their experiences abroad um, in terms of to, to try and bring them back into society now. And uh, if, if listeners are interested in, in ransoms, there's a podcast in our in our archive. I chatted to a chap called uh, Remy Ambul about uh, about uh, ransoms in in the Hundred Years' War. So look for, look out for that one. Um, so these soldiers, they were they're expected basically just to return to their civilian lives. That's right. So there's the, they go back to uh, uh, life as it as, as as it was before, and then they might wait for the next campaign. They may not, you know. So since that may be their only time they go abroad, uh, but they may go numerous times. And we find that throughout our work with soldiers, um, that we can find a sort of a set, we like to say there's a professionalisation because it's a highly militarised society. It's not just the soldiers that will be used to to fighting and being military member. Everyone's meant to practice archery. 
uh, every week um, at the butts. So in a sense, it's something that, that will be expected of, of every individual. Now, this is a question that I'm sure is is, is very difficult for you to answer, and I, I doubt very much whether your data sources uh, allow you to, to, to know about this. But uh, I'm going to use a wildly anachronistic term of PTSD. Um, of uh, you know, Soldiers um, coming back from campaigns today often have, have uh, uh, mental health problems as a result of seeing horrific things. Is there anything that you can identify in the experience or the records that you've looked at to suggest that any of these people had similar sorts of issues? I mean, that's a, I, I think what I got to say is that a very sometimes a bad answer is that's a very interesting question because it's one of those things where you say I can't answer that. But I would think it's a great project is to look what we can look at in the medieval period is what we call pardons. So people will be pardoned for violent conduct, and this can be murder or even rape or a robbery. And what we find is lots of people being pardoned, and they get as part of that pardon they have to serve militarily. So as part of this pardon for being violent, you serve militarily. Um, and what I wonder, if you look to see, do violent individuals become soldiers because of the pardoning? Or does being a soldier make people violent? And that would actually answer one of the big questions that you've just asked me, in a sense, as we could then say, actually, we can see that um, it's the warfare itself that makes people violent, not violent until they come back from war. Or we may actually find actually it tracks the military service is attracting uh, violent individuals. Mm. Okay, well, that's, that sounds like a research project for, for somebody to take on. And I've just given it away. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, there's quite a few people listening here. So if anyone wants to, to take it on, then uh, uh, contact you, I guess. So, so look, so we've got, um, we've got a situation where uh, there's, there's, there's all these uh, soldiers um, in England potentially looking for something to do, potentially a threat to authority. Is there anything in the uh, in the records or the analysis that you've done that that suggests that the crown was worried that these uh, these soldiers could potentially be a threat to them if they chose to do it? I, uh, was there any sort of prediction of, of the revolt in thirteen eighty one? Not that I'm no, I don't think so, Helen. What do you think? In the thirteen seventy eight Parliament and um, in the opening speech to Parliament, there is this. Um, kind of warning that there are lots of rumours being spread in the country and that if these rumours are allowed to go unchecked, that this might cause further um, insurgency amongst the population. They don't specify soldiers, but they talk about people who are, are rumour mongers, they use that phrase, who are um, circulating these kinds of comments about government, about John of Gaunt, probably, you know, about the war itself as well and how that's not going well. Um, and there's this sort of vague prediction that if we let this go unchecked, um, we, we might um, be in for further insurgency, you know, further calamity. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Uh, Richard apparently says something like, peasants you are and peasants you will remain or something like that. Um, you know, again, how true that is, is up for conjecture, but um, it's sort of a message of retribution. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. 
Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. One of the things that you talk about um, in your research is the fact that these soldiers um, uh, not only get involved in, in physical revolts, but they are um, destroying records. They're destroying uh, manorial and governmental records. So could somebody tell me about what's happening there and why they're doing that? Well, that, that's not just that's not just soldiers. That's the rebels. So that's what um, the rebels are doing. Um, I think um, Helen can add to this, but the view is that you destroy the records because the records are say something you don't want. You don't want to be uh, exist anymore. So it could be that you owed a debt, for instance. So you want to get rid of that that bit of paper that says you owed a debt to someone, or it was some sort of record of land owning, and you wanted to destroy that because you felt the land owning was yours. Helen, what, what do you think on that? Yeah, I think that it's really interesting um, in looking at their, their attitudes to the written word. You know, these are people who would either be illiterate in modern terms or you know, certainly have a different relationship anyway to documents. Um, they see them as symbolic. They see, as Adrian said, that their name might be written in a tax list somewhere, but, they, but they're suspicious of it because they don't know, you know, or in a legal account, and they don't know what's being said about them, but they know that their name is there. Um, and so what we know in, this, in the revolt, they make bonfires of these kinds of records as a symbolic um, defiance to government who want to have their name in writing. Um, they, they destroy, for instance, the records of the exchequer, which they identify because they have a green wax seal. So they go around trying to find these documents, anything with a green wax seal. Um, and burn them. They also burn all of the, re- or large parts of the records of the University of Cambridge and again, make bonfires of them. So it's this kind of suspicion of the written record. But at the same time, it's really interesting that they also want, they see the utility in it because they want, as one of their demands they make to the king, um, they want him to grant them letters of pardon and manumission, which will be written up by the clerks in front of them right now and handed over to them. Um, so, you know, at the same time as they're going around burning some records, they see the utility and actually having other records in their pockets before they agree to return home. Yeah, and we're also going to research... I mean, you might think it's bad that we've lost these records, but we'll actually research the absence of records because we'll be able to map where have they burnt these records and does that tell us anything about the the network or the or the or the way that the the rebellion spread actually by showing where the absence of records tells us something. So we, we talked quite a lot about uh, the soldiers and and what you've done there. Is has your research brought up any? And and one would assume that most of the soldiers here, the people we're talking about, would be men. Has has your research brought up any um, any insights into the role of women in thirteen eighty one at all? Yeah, it has. So um, this is something that I was particularly interested in because in the official records, you know, the records written up by the chroniclers in particular who are men and for the most part clerics, there isn't much mention of women. Um, and there's this sort of lacuna in the historical account. But interestingly, when I did my PhD research, I was looking at pardons. And in the pardon records that relate to the revolt, there are names of women, not huge numbers, but there are women in those records. So I was thinking, well, why do women want to seek a pardon? Presumably something that they've done in the revolt, but they're not mentioned in the official accounts. Um, And the research that we've been doing has shown up a few interesting accounts of women's involvement. Um, So just to give you a couple, there's one woman called Marjorie Tawney, um, and we know about her because she wrote or she had written by a scribe two petitions to the king, which survive in the the National Archives today. And we've uncovered these petitions. Um, And in them, basically, she's wanting to petition the king for something unrelated to to the revolt itself, in that she's concerned that for a number of years, she hasn't been paid what's due to her after the death of her husband. She's a widow, and she's claiming this money that is owed to her. But how she links to the revolt is that she claims in these petitions that at the height of the rebellion on the 14th of June in London, when the king and his officials are in the Tower of London, she claims that a message, a proclamation is given out 
throughout the streets of London to say that anyone who has an issue, um, who wants to come forward, can come to the Tower of London themselves physically and present their petition to the king and he will hear them and, you know, he will listen to their demands. So she sees this as her moment. So she grabs her son and together they make their way through the streets of London, which presumably by this time are burning, you know, that there are riots and and, um, destruction going on all around her. And despite all of this, she sort of elbows her way. You can imagine her um, to the front of the crowd at the Tower of London and tries to present this written petition to the king. And what's interesting about her account that survives is that, you know, she's saying that this proclamation went out to people to arrive at the Tower of London, which actually contradicts with the official accounts we get from the chroniclers who say that the king and his officials were desperately trying to disperse the rebels from the tower and get them to meet the king in a more kind of organised way at Mile End um, in the east of London. So, The official account is that they're trying to disperse them, but Marjorie is insistent that she was actually called, um, you know, with her son to to make her way to the tower and present her petition. Um, And the the end of her, I mean, it doesn't go well for her son, who's kind of caught up in the the fighting and arrested and actually dies in prison. Um, But Marjorie seems to have, um, seems to have made some headway with her petition and and being granted these, uh, this money that she's claiming. Um, So hers is an interesting story. Um, and the other woman that I would highlight is um, a woman not from London and from, from the home counties, but from Derbyshire. So this is a woman called Goditha Statham. Um, and she lives in Morley, in a small village in Derbyshire. Um, and really, it's her five sons that take part in the rebellion. But she clearly has a, has a role to play in, in organising what they're doing. And her name comes up because, as I said, of these pardon records, she's there getting a pardon as well as her five sons for their alleged involvement in the revolt. Um, And what it seems they do is that they take arms and fight against um, local landowners in their their local village in Derbyshire. They're sort of a well-to-do gentry family. And again, this contradicts the idea of them all being peasants. Um, So so they're big players in in the local area. And they feel that they have rights to land owning in their locality that are being kind of thwarted, if you like, by the big absentee landowner of the area, which is uh, none other than John of Gaunt, the king's uncle, who is hated. Um, And so they seize this moment. Again, it sort of shows us that the news of the revolt in London is spreading far and wide in the country. So it's reached Derbyshire that they've they've heard about the, the revolt happening in London. And um, Marjorie's sons go and sort of occupy the lands that John of Gaunt owns. Um, and they do things like, again, burn local records and kill a local official and so on. Um, and this is seen to be an anti-Lancastrian revolt in particular that it's John of Gaunt that they're particularly targeting so again it shows that there's another angle to the to the main events in London that further apart abroad in the country there is this feeling of animosity towards John of Gaunt um and then Goditha herself clearly shelters her sons from kind of any retribution or from um, being arrested by royal officials. They're hidden by Goditha and she's trying to keep them safe out of harm's way in the aftermath of the revolt. And then, as I say, her name and those of her sons crops up in the pardon records. And then another interesting link to what Adrian's previously been saying is that four of her five sons um, have significant military service. So we can track their military records um, in the French wars. So it all ties together quite nicely in um, in the story of Goditha and her sons. That's that's fascinating. And you talk there about um, pardons and royal retribution, which which leads us in nicely to to um, uh, a question about how, how would you characterise the the end of the revolt? Does does is it put down by 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 the crown? Is that a, is that a fair way of describing it? Yeah, it is. So um, the the main events that I described in London um, end when the rebels are persuaded to move back out of the capital. Um, There's a scene in the Chronicles, which might or might not be true, which has the young Richard II on a horseback sort of saying, follow me, I'm your leader now because what Tyler's been killed and leading them out of Smithfield and then away from the capital. That might be kind of mythologizing Richard's um, role in events, but however it happens that they do leave London and go back to their localities. I mean, this is also a time of um, summer, you know, soon there'll be harvest and so on. So these people who are agricultural labourers for the most part need to get back to their day jobs. So they disperse from the capital. Um, As I said, some of them do have, um, they have 
been able to gain these letters of manumission and pardon that the crown in their kind of anxiety had scribes write and give and disperse amongst the crowds of rebels. Um, But in the aftermath, uh, in the, the weeks and months afterwards, the crown completely backtracks on that and says all of those um, grants that we gave are null and void. Uh, Richard apparently says something like, peasants you are and peasants you will remain or something like that. Um, You know, again, how true that is, is up for conjecture, but um, it's sort of a message of retribution. And then what they do is they send in kind of their their legal commissions, but they have a very kind of military appearance, um, sometimes led by um, nobles who are, are soldiers and probably with, you know, bodyguards and this kind of thing. And they send them into the localities, into the home counties and into East Anglia. Um, and they start hearing trials against the accused rebels. Um, some of the ringleaders are executed in in obviously kind of um, uh, ex- exemplary fashion, you know, that they're, they're taken out and, and executed. Some of them also are pardoned. And again, this is interesting for... I think how the crown sees in a pragmatic sense the limits of its capability in in um, punishing these people that it thinks if we give exemplary pardons to some of the ringleaders, um, then we can sort of show that we're we're reconciling and we're getting on top of this. And then what they do by the parliament, which sits in October and November of 1381, they debate in parliament. Well, actually, the interesting they debate some of the reasons why this rebellion happened. And it's not all kind of condemnatory. Actually, some of the people who speak in Parliament say that the, the rebels had a fair point and that actually um, those in government, those officials, those nobles have kind of lost their purpose and haven't um, fulfilled their function in society by leading and by protecting those below them. Um, in, on the social ladder. And so they say, therefore, we're to blame, you know, in taking some of the culpability for this rebellion in, in Parliament. Um, and so th- this debate plays out. And then in, in Parliament in November, what they do is decide to grant a general pardon to everyone who's, who's accused of participating in the rebellion. And this pardon is going to be granted um, for all um, actions that happened during the, the summer of 1381. Um, and that people initially can come and give their name in this pardon role, which is why it survives for us to use today. Um, and then later on in subsequent years, the pardons uh, opened up to, to more and more people. They do in the initial pardon, they give a few high profile exceptions. You can't get this pardon if you were involved in specifically in um, the execution of Simon Sudbury and you know other clauses. But gradually those clauses are taken away in the subsequent years. Um, and the pardon list contains over 3000 names of those people who decided to, to take the crown up and actually receive a pardon. Can you just remind us who Simon Sudbury was? Because I don't think we mentioned him. To so he's the arch- sorry, yeah, he's the Archbishop of Canterbury, um, and his interestingly his head, his preserved head, uh, survives in a church in Suffolk. Um, so you can see this kind of image. I think we put it in the magazine article, did we? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So he was executed uh, by by the by the rebels summarily. Yeah, executed. taken out, and beheaded on the tower, and yeah. the yeah, he was a, he was a chancellor, chancellor, and they also executed the treasurer. Uh, who was the prior of the hospitallers um, as well? So they they were very, as I say, extremely high profile, very close uh, to the to the king. These these two men who were executed. Is there is there anything in in the evidence that you've looked at that suggests that the the soldiers who were involved and those and the sailors and those with military experience who were involved in the rebellion were treated more harshly um, uh, after the revolt than those who were your standard peasants? We don't think so because, I mean, there's not a lot of time. What we do is obviously trace their military service. Did they continue to serve? Unfortunately, as we mentioned, there's not that much opportunity to serve. Now, there is a interesting, uh, my colleague Andrew Prescott has noted that one of the big reactions to the revolt is in Norfolk, led by Bishop Dispenser. You might think, what a bishop? He was a very warlike bishop, Henry Dispenser, and he had a battle. Uh, with the rebels, the Battle of uh, North Walsham. And if um, people like a laugh, um, they can see uh, Alan Partridge uh, reenacting that on YouTube, um, <laughs> the Battle of North Walsham. And it is, it's quite hilarious. He takes off his puffer jacket and um, turns into the bishop and beheads a few people on the, on the battleground. But but following this, he's told, he's actually told off. He actually has to get a pardon. That's right, in it, Helen? He has to actually be pardoned for his uh, what he does. Because he's acted, 
some, you know, he's acted without the judicial authority. He's just gone ahead and, and punished rebels himself. But this is what Andrew's discovered, is that in 1383, the Bishop Dispenser leads a, a, a campaign to Flanders. He leads it under the auspices of a crusade. Now, at this time, there's, there's numerous popes. It might sound we've only just had two popes ourselves. One pope resigned and we, and we received a pope. At this time, in the Middle Ages, there's two popes. Um, it's, it's, it's probably too much for this podcast, but in a sense, uh, the, the English support one pope, the French and people in Flanders support another pope. And he goes on a crusade to Flanders. Why does he do that? He does it to raise money for his campaign because he can, he can sell indulgences. So rather than charge a tax and raise another poll tax and all that trouble, you can actually charge, uh, raise money by indulgences. But we find, and get a long way of getting around to it, but we find men serving in his crusade <clears throat> are the same men who were rebels and the same men, I guess, he would have tried to punish. So there's this idea in, in we find this all the time, we're looking at soldiers and also other continuity through this period is that people are survivors. You know, they survive and they go on to serve with the person who was probably trying to, uh, put them down following the rebellion. Excellent. Uh, and you're absolutely right. We'd uh, be too tricky to go into that uh, Pope story right now. Um, uh, we are looking at sorting out a, a papal history podcast, uh, listeners, so uh, so we'll sort that out sooner or later and we'll cover that. Um, so, so, look, wrapping up, um, what, what now do we know about the Peasants' Revolt of 1381? What, what further insight have you, have you um, provided about the aims and ambitions of these, uh, of these rebels? So I think um, the thing that we're proving for the most part is that um, when we call the people of 1381, that there is a diversity of people who are not in the official accounts of the revolt that um, hopefully we'll be able to tell more about in terms of their stories and their their reasons for joining the revolt. You know, the soldiers that we've mentioned today clearly um, have kinds of reasons for for joining that they're they're trained in military service but they're discontented in some sense with the um the direction that war is going um and the um the sense of lack of leadership from government there's the the traditional story of the the poll tax and the fact that people were discontented with the demands that the government were increasingly making for um direct tax levies on, on populations. Um, and you can add to that these stories that we're, we're revealing about the corruption of local tax officials. Um, so it was known from the Chronicle accounts that some of these tax officials were sort of pocketing, um, you know, on the side, taking money. They were also accused of really um, horrendous um, sort of sexual abuse cases, really, where they are um, saying that they're going to prove the age of women by these kinds of um, interfering with them sexually and so on. Um, so there's all this kind of corruption going on in, in the level of government officials. Um, and I think there's a sort of sincerity we're seeing to the ideological commitment that they're showing. You know, when we think about John Ball's preaching and this radical egalitarian statement um, calling for essentially the um, equality of people and the abolition of serfdom, you can see that people, some of whom clearly were not serfs themselves, you know, that they were well-to-do gentry, they might and we've we've also been finding that they might have been clerics, so churchmen um, are playing a key role in this as well, and not churchmen at the elite level, bishops and and so on, but local parish priests. I think they're showing a sincere commitment to this idea that um, the abolition of serfdom should be carried through, that this is an unfair and unjust um, system of indenture, and um, that they they want to see an end to that, even though they, they themselves don't suffer from it. Um, and the other thing we're seeing is that this is a nationwide rebellion. So um, people in Derbyshire, people in, we haven't mentioned, but in Yorkshire, in Scarborough and Beverley, um, they join in a rebellion. Um, they have local issues and they're clearly not issues that are necessarily tied to what's going on in London. Um, but they're hearing about the revolt and they're coming out in support of it. And when you think about the quite high stakes that they're facing when they actually come out in armed rebellion, you know, you can really see how committed they are to this cause, I think. Now, um, people get quite exercised about the concept of rewriting history. Um, uh, and uh, I guess in a way, some of the things you talk about here would be, particularly um, in terms of the nomenclature, um, I'm, I'm thinking about say, the, the Victorian naming of the Peasants' Revolt that you talked about to start with. Um, should we be giving this a, a different name? Should it be the, the Soldiers' Coup or something else? What do you think? I think, I think that would be probably... Not, not even worse, but as bad. Um, <laughs> you know, the number of soldiers in it are probably 
you know, I'm, I'm going to guess now, but probably, you know, 10, 20 percent of that of that group. They're obviously key, as we've mentioned. Um, but I think it's a number of, you know, it's a Helen says it's not it's not one big thing. It's a number of things brought together. And when we dissect the beaut- the big thing we can do is the people of 13-1, we're looking at the people and who they are. And our, our other team members, I should mention them, Herbert and also another Helen, are helping us bring this data together from the very local level. You can find out who these people are and what was what was they what did they want to gain from it? And sometimes it's extremely personal. It's they've got a problem with someone specifically, as Helen mentioned, with the, the Stathams. And it's that these they use the rebellion, they see what's going on around them, and they follow up with some personal thing that that's that's happened to them and, and it's i think that's for the first time we're able to identify that just because going back to the start because of the big data approach it allows you it's strange isn't it we're using big data but actually revealing stuff up on the personal level brilliant what, what about you helen would you are you comfortable calling it the peasants revolt or do you want to rename <laughs> if i had to go else? for a name i quite like what they they use at the time which is sort of something like the great rumor because this idea of rumor emphasizes the spread of words the whispers the communications that were going on amongst the Rebels, so the great rumour I'd go for. Nice. Sounds like a, a, a title for a book right there. There probably is one. Um, so, uh, okay, wrapping up, um, where's, where next for this research? Is this is this at all a citizen history project? Are you looking for people to get involved and, uh, and interrogate your data set? We're going to make the uh, database open by, as I said, uh, by the end of this year. We want people to look. They can start writing up. Uh, if they can find out interesting individuals or places or incidents, we're looking for them to write. We've got a set of stories up there already, but we're willing, We're going to add the people adding them to us. We've done that before in our other projects. Um, if they want to help by other ways, yes, get in touch. We're, we're trying to gain interest during May and June. We're going to tweet the revolt, so starting daily, and as we go through the, the process and in uh, into the, the actual days of the revolt, there'll be every half an hour. Hopefully, people don't don't think it's actually real, like um, Orson Welles and uh, War of the Worlds, or else we might get an actual um, real revolt going on. But that's going to happen. And we're also taking part in the Estuary Festival um, with a open outdoor exhibition with panels outside. Um, and that's on the in the Essex um, in the Wat Tyler Country Park uh, at the end of May, beginning of June. So hopefully people can go out and do something uh, and visit that and read those panels we're developing there as well. That was Professor Adrian Bell and Dr Helen Lacey of the People of 1381 Project. Their project website is 1381.online. You can also read their feature in the May issue of BBC History magazine. And we have more Peasants Revolt content on historyextra.com. If you want to check out the estuary festival that Adrian mentioned, the details for that are in the show notes of this episode. Also, Dave mentioned another podcast in our back catalogue, the interview with Remy Amble about prisoners of war in the Hundred Years' War. You can find that at historyextra.com. Just search for Hundred Years' War. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us tomorrow for an episode on 1951's Festival of Britain.